Hey, welcome back to Blurry Creatures. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in every week. Uh, Luke, we've been getting a lot of messages from uh, previous guests who've been tuning into the show, too. And it's cool. Uh, people are listening to the show. And even some people are like leaving bad reviews, and then the next week they continue to troll us. So <laughs> even, even our haters are tuning in weekly. You can't get enough Blurry Creatures. Once it gets in your bloodstream, you are infected and you can't stop. And that's how we feel, Luke. Like we're we're diving down these rabbit holes, we can't stop, and we're bringing Laura back on the show because obviously she introduced us to so many fascinating topics. And when I was editing the show and I went back and listened to it, I was like, "Oh man, we should ask about that, 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 that." And in the comments, you guys were all like, "Dude, you need to have her back on. She's great." And so here we are. But with those messages from people, from you guys, there's often this other side that's like. Very critical of what we're doing or what someone suggests or what a guest presents to us. Like, I just want you to, to know that, like, these topics are often very spiritual. So they are going to ruffle feathers, naturally. That's just what the Bible does. It makes you feel uncomfortable about a lot of your pre, you know, the things that you bring to the table. You know, the system that you have been taught to see the world in. And then you go read it from a different perspective and it blows your mind because your paradigm gets shattered so anyway with that i just want to say like look like we're going to make mistakes luke and i are the only thing we can do is lead with our heart because obviously we're not experts on ancient history and civil engineering and all these topics and these these things that you have to be you have to know a lot about in order to carry on a show like this because you know it goes from bigfoot to the history of the earth very fast so Give us some grace. I think people tune in because we inject a lot of just, you know, uh, a roundabout collection of uh, of experiences in our lives that help us shape this show, and we present it in a palatable way. Obviously, if you want to go listen to some crazy expert on Egyptology, just ramble on for two hours. That's not blurry creatures. We're the normies just listening to people tell us fascinating things, and we're going to make mistakes, so... I just want to say that. And when it comes to the spiritual stuff, Laura's episode last time was just randomly cutting out. I'm editing her show, and then there's just five seconds, just nothing. No pop, no hiss. Just It's like somebody just deleted certain parts of her message. I try to string it together to make sense. It's really weird, so I'm not even sure if her audio is going to do it on this episode, Luke. But just throwing that out there. Some weird stuff going on, and I think we're in the passenger seat going for the ride. We don't we don't always know where the car is going to take us. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is this is not an uncommon problem for this space and, and with other shows as well. Whether you're whether you're you know you're recounting you know Bigfoot encounters and have to pull out I mean, what's what's legit and what's not, or whether you you know whether you're Tony Merkel and you've got people calling in and, and you kind of have to figure out if you think people are credible or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's part of everything, and I think in a world where we're we're lied to so often by the biggest megaphones, you know, even a lot of that stuff's coming to light this week. Sure, when when we're hearing about things that happened in Wuhan, the people were on last year and told their conspiracy theorists. It's funny how that works out, but it's I think it's on the onus of critical thinkers to do their research, to check sources, and we do the best we can here. Yeah, well, I mean, our guests just make you know pretty bold claims about whether it's aliens you know ufos bigfoot there's a lot of bold ideas that come out and sometimes it's easy to go you know 
well, that person was full of it or whatever. And well, I mean, how do you know though? That's the thing. It's like the, yeah. no, there isn't. We don't have definitive answers on a ton of this stuff. And when we're looking back in history too. We're just we're looking. I think I don't remember who said it. Was it? It was might have been Derek Gilbert saying it's like a mosaic, right? And like we only have a few pieces of it. Sure. So we're just doing the best we can to look at the whole picture. Whether it's history, we have pieces we can plug in. Um, and when it comes to like the UFO stuff or Bigfoot, there's not a definitive answer. So anybody that tells you there is, yeah, they don't really know that. And the Bigfoot hasn't showed up and told us what, what what's going on out there. Just like the just like the aliens um, haven't, you know, made their big in- <laughs> disclosure. It's coming. Well, except to Scott Walter, they did. Um, <laughs> but I mean that, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it's. I mean, how do you know the answer to that? Yeah. Well, it's just heavier. It's you know, I'm not an. <laughs> you know, you have to be an expert in ufology, ancient history ancient construction, civil engineering. I mean, talk about some of these portals and megaliths and ley lines and copper conductivity and all these like advanced. I, that's, that's why we have guests because because we aren't. We're just, you know, we're just two dudes and generally located in Tennessee trying, trying, trying to answer questions. And a lot of times you get more questions, more questions, more questions. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. Enjoy the journey. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop is just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. Yeah, well, hopefully it actually records your audio this time, Laura. It was it was cutting out. You did an amazing job with the editing, though, because it I could only tell a couple of places. So good job. Thank you. Try to string it together the best I could. I was going to preface it, but then I, I figured we'd just talk about it on this episode that stuff like that happens when you start talking about these topics. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, so I thank you for coming back on again. Yeah. I felt like... I was a little bit of a kid in the candy store. You were dropping so many um, just little trails. Of like, I want to go down that one. I want to go down that one. I want to go down that one. I figured we could just do them back to back and kind of let people get the full the full experience of, of what you want to tell them. But but when I was listening back, I really was thinking, man, I should we should have talked about Jekyll Island a little more. Mm. You, you started to talk about some of the stories of the Native Americans having being very big and tall, and that's the birthplace of the Fed. Not that the last conversation wasn't fantastic. We've already gotten a lot of great feedback from that. Some people say it was their favorite so far. So wow. Um, wow. there you go. I think like if you haven't listened to our, our first episode with you, people listening, go back and listen to that episode first and just get the whole the whole experience. Why Jekyll Island? What specifically is there? And what year is this all kind of going down? This this birthplace of the Fed? 
Well, yeah, great place to start. So I think um, I'll pick up on where I was talking about last podcast and that I mentioned that um, there's two symbols that I found throughout my investigation that um, really were this consistent thread all throughout history connecting the Nephilim. And I mentioned uh, the color red and we talked about that, but also um, the circumpunct and the circumpunct uh, is, it's, it's really um, a more recent term that was coined by Dan Brown. He wrote a book called The Lost Symbol, but it, it's the symbol with a circle and a dot or the circle within the circle. And so it's, an, it's a symbol that really dates back to ancient civilization. And what I found is that some of the ancient cultures of Georgia's coastal islands they actually utilize the circumpunct in a lot of their rituals. And so that re really led me to Jekyll Island. Um, but if we think about just for a minute, the, the origin of the circumpunct, it's, it's linked to the worship of the Egyptian sun god Ra. And so there's actually ancient remnants of circumpuncts pretty much on every continent. And so what that tells us is that here is this universal symbol that represents something of great spiritual significance to so many different cultures. And so, um, you know, we can find the circumpunct in the symbol for gold in alchemy or also in the philosopher's stone or the Rosicrucian rose, um, of course, with uh, the Egyptian sun god Ra and the eye of Horus and then also, the astrological symbol for the sun is a circumpunct. And then, of course, we know that the all-seeing eye, which is on top of the unfinished pyramid, and that is significant both in Freemasonry, the Illuminati, and it's also on our dollar bill. And so, as I began to look at all of this, um, what I began to realize is that the roots of the Federal Reserve are really um, intertwined with the mystery religions and occult practices. And so if we think about it too, I think you may have mentioned this, Nate, something that I said on a different um, interview I was doing, but secret societies are structured um, in this way, a circle within a circle. And so you have the inner core of a secret society that's shrouded by an outer organization and you know, if we think about the Illuminati, it's burrowed deep within Freemasonry. And so that's an example of a secret society within a secret society. And so just it's helpful to understand that as a backdrop of the significance of the circumpunct. So now we can kind of venture to Jekyll Island and some of those surrounding islands on the Georgia coastline. So, um, We'll start with actually Sapello Island, and that is uh, about 54 miles north of Jekyll Island. And back in 1872, there was this discovery of uh, what's called the shell mounds or the shell circles. And so um, what they discovered is that there's large mounds um, in a circular formation, and that really interested a lot of archaeologists. And so there's been, um, you know, investigations into that site and in that island for about a century. And what they did is um, through all of their findings, they realized that 
this was an ancient city and it there were actually three neighborhoods delineated by large circular walls that were about 20 feet tall and they were made of shells and then some of the more recent findings they used ground penetrating radar and they noticed that in the largest neighborhood so the largest circle um, there was something of prominence right in the middle um, they haven't determined what that is but so that was kind of my first clue that here is an ancient city and they they date it back um, the earliest occupants of that ancient city they date back to 4200 bc and so um, here is kind of the first evidence that at least i found of a circumpunct near Jekyll Island. And so now if we go a little bit further south to an island called Sea Island, and this is, um, I believe it's 16 miles north of Jekyll Island. And in 1936, there was actually an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, which happens to be my neck of the woods. And um, the article was titled, George's Sand Dunes Yield Startling Proof of a Prehistoric Race of Giants. And so in this article, what it explains is, um, you know, they were doing excavation to work on, well, actually to build the Glen County Airport. And as workers were excavating the land, what they found is they found skulls and skeletons um, scattered throughout the sand dunes. And so they called in some archaeologists and the lead archaeologist, his name was Preston Holder. And so he um, you know, worked on that site and he was sponsored by the Smithsonian. And what they found is that uh, these skeletons, at least the adult skeletons, ranged in height from six and a half to seven feet. Um, but even more interesting than that, the skulls that they disinterred from this area, they sent to the Smithsonian. And at the time, one of the, the lead experts um, in the area of tribal peoples and indigenous peoples, um, his name was Dr. Herdlika. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, he looked at the skulls and examined them. And in that article, this is what he says. He says, the Sea Island skulls follow closely the Temecuan characteristics. Archaeological experts declare they're not of the accepted Indian type. Skulls are unusually large and of the long-headed type. So there, I was very intrigued because I had already done a little bit of research on the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru. So obviously this kind of caught my attention and the fact that it was so close to Jekyll Island um, but even beyond that, what he says in, in this article is he's making a connection between these giant remains and the Temecuans, which was the mysterious tribe that inhabited Jekyll Island, the Golden Isles, and then part of northern um, and central Florida. And so that was very intriguing. And this Temecuan tribe... Um, inhabited these areas from 1150 AD until uh, the 1500s. And so then I began really digging in. Okay, so what, what do we, what can we learn about the Temecuans? And so just in doing um, research, there's all sorts of, you know, resources about the Temecua. And what's notable is that almost every resource I read 
said something about their stature. I mean, it was clear that they stood out um, in comparison to other tribal people in that area. And so their stature was tall and they were very muscular. And so, um, the, you know, there's different reports uh, on the height of these um, Temecuans, but some historians put them between seven and eight feet in height. And I found that interesting because it, in a way that is consistent with um, what was found on Sea Island in these skeletons. So then we have the Europeans. When the European explorers land on the shores of Jekyll Island, they are, you know, in that surrounding area, they encounter the Temecuans. And there's a particular explorer, Frenchman, named Lemoyne. And he made incredible um, records of the encounters he had with the Temecuans. So not only did he document it in writing, but he actually made sketches of their tribal life. Um, and so that was invaluable because not only do we have a visual record, now it's a sketch, obviously, but a visual representation of their stature, but we also, um, you know, can gain information about their governmental structure, their village architecture, you know, their spiritual rituals and beliefs. And so that was incredibly important um, and part of my investigation. So I thought maybe what I'd do is highlight um, some of those ceremonies because it really begins to pull these um, ideas together. So the first thing I'll mention is... Um, one of the Temecuan chiefs, um, his son uh, is named Athor, and he was mentioned several times as being um, at least half a foot taller than any of the tallest of the European men. And so um, his stature stood out. And so, you know, as I began um, researching this, I really uh, saw that there might be something here. There might be some Nephilim genes here. And that's when I decided I, I really need to dig into these drawings that Lemoyne has, these sketches. And so um, I have quite a number of them in my book, but um, what's interesting is it becomes really clear from these drawings that the circumpunct was prominent in their cultural life. So the Temecuans used the circumpunct in almost every aspect of their culture. So they, even the way their villages were structured, um, they were structured in a circular pattern with a prominent building being in the middle. Their funeral ceremonies were in a circle with um, you know, a mound for the body buried in the center. Uh, their spiritual ceremonies, they were always positioned in a circumpunct. And then even the breastplates that they wore um, into battle were circumpunks. And so it, it really became clear that there's something here and it, it makes sense because um, in these drawings, what we find is that the Temecuans worship the sun god. And so they look to this deity for protection, for prosperity, you know, for harvest, for victory. And it makes sense that the circumpunct was so much a part of their culture because the circumpunct is that ancient symbol, phallic symbol of the Egyptian sun god Ra. And so here we have it um, incorporated in almost every aspect. 
And so there's um, an interesting um, ceremony that took place that Lemoyne witnessed. And I want to just read an excerpt from it because it it shows how the sorcerer, the Temecuan sorcerer, incorporated the circumpunct in his magic. So it says, the sorcerer made ready a place in the middle of the army and seeing the shield which Dotanyi's page was carrying, asked to take it. On receiving it, he laid it on the ground and drew around it a circle upon which he inscribed various characters and signs. Then he knelt down on the shield and sat on his heels so that no part of him touched the earth and began to recite some unknown words in a low tone and to make various gestures as if engaged in a vehement discourse. This lasted for a quarter of an hour when he began to assume an appearance so frightful that he was hardly like a human being, for he twisted his limbs so that the bones could be heard to snap out of place, and he did many other unnatural things. After going through with all this, he came back all at once to his ordinary condition, but in a very fatigued state and with an air as if astonished, and then stepping out of his circle, he saluted the chief and told him the number of the enemy where they were intending to meet him. So this ceremony, I just want to highlight a couple of things because um, what the sorcerer did is to begin the sacred ceremony, he took the shield of one of the European men. So it wasn't that this shield was particularly important. It hadn't been consecrated to the sun god. It wasn't something that had been used in a Temecuan ceremony previously. It just simply was a shield that he could fit his entire body on. And so I have pictures of this in my book, but so he kneels in the center of the shield. And again, the soldiers, the army are in a circle around him and he's in the center. So just the ceremony itself is a circumpunct, but then he takes that shield, which is a circle and he gets in the middle of it so as to not touch the ground. And then he draws a circle around the shield. And so in essence, what he's doing is he's creating a circumpunct and inserting himself in the middle of the circumpunct. And what that does is that represents um, that sacred space. And he's he's creating um, that sacred circle for the practice of magic, which I found very interesting. And then there's um, another ceremony that has incredible symbolism. Um, And this one in particular um, really started kind of connecting the dots for me. So it's called the victory ceremony. And I'll do my best to describe it um, because the picture, you know, is worth a thousand words. But um, so in this ceremony, essentially uh, what they're doing is they're praising and worshiping the sun god for the victory that they just had on the battlefield. And so the Temecula, they um, align themselves in a semicircle. And then across from them, they have seven poles in a semicircle. And on top of these poles are the severed arms and legs of their enemies. And so what you have, if you can imagine this, is the dead and the living form a circle. And then the sorcerer is positioned in the middle of the circle. And so they cast this circle for this, the purpose of this ritual 
um, because what they're doing is they're creating a sacred space as a conduit for releasing that supernatural power. And so on these pulls, you have the body parts or what is termed trophies, and they are connecting um, what's above to below because there's a vine that's draped around each pole. And so it's connecting the trophies to the earth. And what that forms is a symbol called uh, Kapemni. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this right. So I'll, I'll actually spell it in case anyone wants to do further research, but it's K-A-P-E-M-N-I. And so this Kapemni um, is believed to be like a set of vortices um, that's believed to connect the upper and lower worlds with communication. And so it's actually a Lakota term. And what it means is what is above is like what is below and what is below is like what is above. And what's interesting is this is the same phrase that's used in alchemy's hermetic law. And I won't go into what that is, but the point is, is um, if you remember, I mentioned that the circumpunct is the alchemical symbol for gold. And here we have that same phrase surfacing, but just in the Lakota language. But the Temecuan, they are um, creating this symbol in this victory celebration. So um, the Kapemni um it's evolved from this concept of a power line. And so what it is, is it's this supernatural power that's radiating outward from a central sacred point. So back to the Temecuan victory celebration, the middle pole of the seven is prominent because it has two vines wrapped around it, forming a double helix. And to me, that just was an eye opener because it represents not only this sacred communication between above and below, but it symbolizes a strand of DNA. And yeah, so I was, yeah. was going to say DNA, the double helix. Yeah. yeah. So what I began wondering is, is this a representation of their defiled genome in the Temecula? And I think that it is. And so another um, disturbing, probably the most disturbing ceremony that the Temecuans um, engaged in was the practice of sacrificing the firstborn male son to the Temecua chief. And again, they did this in the form of the circumpunct. So um, the villagers would be around and then the mother would be off um, outside of the circle um, in grief, crying and wailing. And then a close relative of the mother would be holding the infant in the middle of the circle, and then they would club it to death. And so, um, you know, in sharing all of this, what I think where the, the dots begin to connect is, so last podcast, I mentioned um, those criteria for the Nephilim host. Well, so here we see and what we've gleaned from the Temecula that um, it's likely that some of them um, meet the criteria for a Nephilim host in that they were excessively tall, extraordinarily strong. Um, they participated in sorcery and witchcraft. They engaged in um, blood occult rituals and they committed human sacrifices. 
And so um, the, the pieces started coming together. But what's, what's interesting, too, is as I was listening to Timothy Bentz, he's that intercessor that I mentioned in the first podcast that kind of got me on this trail years and years ago. And what he mentioned about Canaanite altars is that they release DNA into the land. And he talks about DNA as these information packets. And so I began to think about that um, in the sense that if this is accurate, so then defiled DNA of the Temecula could have been released into the land from the false worship that they offered up. And um, on these altars, and, and those are called altars of offense. And so if we think about that, then the early inhabitants of Jekyll Island, by engaging in this false worship, they infused the land with that spiritual DNA. And so, you know, we know all throughout history, the circumpunct is used as a symbol in occult practices and false worship. So here we have the Temecuans engaging in this iniquity, and it releases a curse on the land, and that has an impact on subsequent generations. And so um, it becomes the seedbed for the incubation of the debt enslavement system we call the Federal Reserve. And that's why it's so important to understand all this, because we really, in order for us here and now to be set free from this debt enslavement system, we really have to understand the roots of the Federal Reserve. Hmm. I, guess wow. I, have, I have two questions, Laura, that, that came up. I've like got thinking. 20. Well, first <laughs> first is the, the vine, the staff, it, it made me think of like that symbol that they use for medicine, like with the serpent. Yeah. Is there any any connection to... I mean, if we're talking about civilizations that are ancient and that have been there and they all use the same symbols and that sounds a lot like what they use in, I think it comes from Greek mythology with, with the serpent and the staff, which we still use today for medicine. Um, and then the sacrifice stuff sounds a lot like, like Moloch, like the Moloch kind of type yes. worship that we hear about, like whether mm -hmm. it be the Bohemian Grove or in, mm -hmm. in, in antiquity. Um, yeah. What's interesting, too, is that word Moloch um, in the Hebrew can also mean king. And so here you have so a king who represents a deity or, it, you know, stands in proxy for a deity. And I believe that's what was going on here with the Temecuans is they were sacrificing their firstborn son to Molech. And in this situation, it was the king, the Temecuan king or chief who was like a proxy is that a, it, it just it seems like a, again it's it's a it's a flip or a, a bastardization of the gospel mm. right you you kill your first son and it but it's 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 the defilement like it, essentially it's, it's a gospel god gave his willingly gave his his son up and his and his son willingly laid down his life for for the salvation of of us all and yet you have these occult and these really evil ceremonies that take that and but but it's just it's it's the inverse right it's 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 taking innocent life for for the defilement of everyone it's like it's like the inverse of the gospel i like that luke because i was i was thinking the same thing I, I i that's where i was that's what i was thinking to myself and and when you talked about the last episode of epigenetics i wanted to ask you when christ offers us his blood does it flip the genetic switch is it like 
like you were talking about how like it just seems like you were describing something like the the defilement of these certain areas was releasing DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is Christ's because you know you grew up in the church and you hear Christ shed his blood for you. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. You it sounds serious, so you li- so you believe it. Okay, man, wow, I must I'm, I gotta. But when you get older, you're like, well, what actually happens? Mm-hmm. Is there like is there a genetic thing that's turned off or on when he does this? What do you think? That's fascinating to think about. I I think yes, um, because I've seen, especially if we we understand how to appropriate his blood. And, you know, I, I can't remember if we talked about generational iniquities. I think we touched on it a little yeah. bit last yeah, time. We did a little bit. But so his blood can cleanse our bloodline. And so when we think about it in terms of epigenetics, then those maybe those curses that lead to diseases with the epigenetic markers switched on his blood, when we pray and we break off those generational iniquities, it can flip the switch off. And I know I've experienced something like that. You know, when you think about miraculous healing, what is that? Is that his blood entering into that place in our body and bringing that life forth? Absolutely. I think so. And I experienced a miraculous healing on my heart um, when I was actually at Fuller Theological Seminary. I took this class called Power Encounter, and I had no idea what it was about. But the professor that taught it, his name is um, Charles Kraft, and I had him the first semester I was in graduate school, and I'm like an obsessive note taker, and so I developed carpal tunnel syndrome, and I had, my wrist was in a brace, and I raised my hand in class, and he stopped the class, and he said, what's wrong with your wrist? And it took me aback because, you know, I'm coming from... UC San Diego, where I'm one in like 500 in a classroom and the professors could care less. Anyway, short story to a very long story is that he prayed for me at the break in this class and I was miraculously healed. So from that experience, I'm like, I'm going to take whatever class this man teaches that fits in my schedule. Sure. And He taught this class called Power Encounter, and it really was turned out to be a class on deliverance and um, setting people free from demonic stuff. And I this this actually is in my book a little bit, but I won't go too far into it, only to say that I had a heart murmur since birth. Um, And so every doctor that I had seen would tell me you have a heart murmur. And I was an athlete from the age of six on all the way through college. So it wasn't like a serious one, but um, it definitely was something that was there all throughout my life. I take this class, they pray for me and I was healed of a heart murmur. And so was that Jesus's blood entering into my genetic line and flipping that switch off? I don't know how that works. It could be. I just know that when we appropriate the blood of Jesus, whether it's over our physical body or it's over our generational line, because we have mindsets that are defiled or broken Mm. and that need cleansing. I do believe that his blood, in fact, there's a scripture that says his blood speaks a better word. And so his blood speaks a better word than what our blood speaks. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you think about it, and as you know, as an adult, you know, you have to trace yourself back and go. Well, I mean, it's not it's not like everyone goes out and gets a blood transfusion of Jesus's blood. So what right. happened? What actually happens? Like something happens in the supernatural realm or that realm that we just you know we just don't understand but you know it you hear those phrases growing up you know the cleansing of the blood and all those things and it's just oh isn't it also covenant law right i mean it's the idea that covenants are created by the spilling of innocent blood god created all these covenants with the with the with the israelites and his people and it was a pure lamb right and god is representative and, and there was the new covenant was created and there's a very specific ceremony and ritual around the a covenant mm-hmm. you know you, you had you had to walk and switch clothes and these different things that they did and actually and and i took a class on this at one point Mm. on when i was at ywam about how there's very specific ritual that goes along with a covenant and maybe think about the idea that like essentially when you're in the occult and you're spilling this innocent blood in these sacrifice ceremonies and situations you're essentially creating a covenant in the oldest way but with you know with the enemy with with your with your with your God, with little G God, who ends up being so ultimately yeah, ends up that, being either either you know one of the watchers or or the devil Satan himself. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of what we were. That's kind of the the rational explanation that we all that we all got, you know. But then you kind of just if you think about it a little bit more, and you're like, and as the show barrels on, and we hear more and more from from people about what actually like Michael Heiser was talking about. Jesus is comes to f- do spiritual warfare. Right. And that's something that never gets talked about. Right. Uh, that's a big part of his mission is spiritual warfare. And we're just like, oh, we just thought it was all about us. Right. Um, anyway, it's just thoughts. It, it's it's beyond me. It's beyond my pay grade. But it feels like the more and more this show goes on, we could have we could have named the show DNA Wars <laughs> because yeah. that's really what it comes down to. We've made, we made that joke before. This is what we're talking about on the show over and over and over again. It's DNA, it's bloodlines. Right. Laura, I want to I want to get back. So you're saying that like these ceremonies that happened on Jekyll Island, right? And how's that? I mean, how does that happen? Yeah. Well, so let me tie in a couple of things from last time and then go a bit further um, in talking about what are the roots of the Federal Reserve. And so, um, again, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And, you know, Nate, when you talk about your podcast is becoming about DNA wars, you know, really, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to the seed war in Genesis 3, like I talked about last time. But um, there's a couple of verses uh, that really unlock this mystery uh, about Jekyll Island. And so let me let me review some of those. So the first one is Genesis 3.1, and it's one we, we well know. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any living creature of the field, which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, can it really be that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So again, I, I like to dig into the meaning of these words. And the Hebrew word for serpent is nakash. And it's, it means serpent because of its hissing. So I'm like, okay, let's dig a little further. What is it about this hissing? And so if you look at the root word for that, it's divination, hiss, whisper, a magic spell, enchanter. 
And so now we begin to see that most likely Satan didn't appear necessarily as a serpent, but he probably appeared in this appealing manner, kind of masquerading as this angel of light, whispering magic spells in Eve's ear. And so Satan used witchcraft to manipulate Eve to walk in rebellion. Mm. So then when she ate of that forbidden fruit, here's what the father said to her. And this is in Genesis 3.13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, so now that word deceived in the Hebrew is nasha. And it means to deceive, beguile, mentally delude, morally seduce, to impose, or to cause to go astray. And so that's all according to the Strong's Concordance. But if we consider the Hebrew and English lexicon called Brown Driver Briggs, check this out. It defines nausea as to lend on interest or usury or to become a creditor. And so when I discovered that, I nearly fell out of my chair because what nausea is, is to make someone a debtor. And so this was one of the clues that really began to unlock this mystery of the roots of the Federal Reserve, because this verse gives us an idea of the agenda behind the Federal Reserve, because um, it was created to deceive the American people over a century ago and enslave us in debt. And so um, we are buried in so much debt that it's inconceivable how we can even get out of our debt. And if you want an eye-opening experience, go to usdebtclock.org and watch how fast our national debt increases. So when we think about it, the Federal Reserve, when they passed the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, when Congress did that, what they did is they enslaved the American citizens to debt, all the while filling their pockets with money and allowing the the elite banksers to get rich off of us. And so we really begin to see how the Federal Reserve and the people that formed the Federal Reserve how there was deception and lust and greed and pride and rebellion. And so then if we think back again to Eve, when Eve was um, beguiled by Satan, she fell into the trap of sin. And the consequence was that she was in debt to that sin. And that Mm -hmm. debt could only be paid by death. And so Eve became a debtor to sin. So then um, I was reading this other book. Um, as I was writing, and um, it, Stephen Quayle and Thomas Horn wrote a book called Uncovering the Lost World of the Cloud Eaters. And so I'm reading this, and they have a paragraph on the ramifications of this great deception of Satan and you falling into the trap. And let me just read it, because the last sentence, again, just jumped out at me. It says, this is the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, a consequence that continues to bear 
bitter fruit in our own sin to this day. The act of rebellion against the creator's command put humanity into such debt that it could only be satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. But Satan was the banker who wrote the note. So here's where things start to connect for me. So consider this. We've been beguiled by elite banksters that have been led by the great deceiver himself, Satan. And so the entire Federal Reserve System is rooted in nausea. And the people that formed the Federal Reserve, they exuded Nephilim traits because they were master deceivers and they were so skilled at lying to the American people. See, they pretended that they had our best interest at mind all the while crafting this insidious enslavement system. And so nausea is the root of defilement in our monetary system. And the Federal Reserve is built upon usury and lending on interest. And their product, the Federal Reserve product is debt. And so if we think about it, you know, King Solomon sums it up really good in Ecclesiastes 1.9, where he says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And so if we think about this, it's the same root of defilement from the beginning of the ages. It's just repackaged and renamed to perpetuate this deception. But thankfully, there's so many of us that are awakening out of our slumber and more and more Americans are wondering what the heck is behind the curtain or who is behind the curtain. And so in the case of the roots of the Federal Reserve, the seeds of Nakash, so the seeds of Uh, enchantment and divination and in the whisper of a magic spell, they were planted in the soil. um, And the fruit of that on Jekyll Island has been a pervasive pattern of false worship, idolatry, enslavement, and bloodshed on the land. And what's interesting, so, you know, the Temecuans lived there from 1150 to 1500s. And then, you know, more and more Europeans came. Well, there in 1792, um, Jekyll Island was owned by a Frenchman named uh, Christophe Dubignon. And he escaped the French Revolution and came to America. And he bought up Jekyll Island. Well, so he developed um, plantations on the island and he established uh, slavery on the island as well is very interesting because then a couple of, um, well, so a generation later, his son, when he owned the island, he orchestrated the arrival of a slave ship called the Wanderer. And it landed on Jekyll Island. And it was 50 years after slavery was outlawed in our land. And it happened to be the second to last slavery ship to ever land on American shores. And so here we have yet another example of rebellion and welcoming that spirit of enslavement. And so the spirit of slavery really um, was uninhibited on Jekyll Island. And so what that does is as it's strengthened, you know, over the centuries by false worship, the defilement that's in the land um, 
leads to the perfect breeding ground for the Federal Reserve. And, you know, we know that this Federal Reserve, it's a secret pact that was formed to enslave billions of people. And it was done using the art of deception, which is nausea. And again, that's the language of the Nephilim who are the seed of Satan. Wow. Did you see how that all ties Yeah, to yeah. I, I want to wow. go back. I want to go back a little bit because I think it, I, I heard this before, Luke, and I think it was Michael Heiser that said that whenever a, an animal is mentioned in the Bible, it's referring to a spirit. I don't know. I, I I think I heard that on one of his episodes of podcasts. And I was thinking about some of the earlier atonement theories that people had, like the ransom theory and Christ, Christus Victor, that Christ is, pays a ransom to the devil to bring humanity back. That was like an early church view. And it wasn't until modern history where we, we changed to penal substitutionary and some of these other atonement theories that are a little more less of an you know what i mean it, the, the earlier church sound like they they believed there was some sort of cosmic interaction like i don't know that just sounds like it falls in line with some of the stuff you're talking about with the fed do you, do you have you looked at any of those theories and what do you th- okay. i haven't okay. no i want to say that's above my pay grade <laughs> well no i mean well it's just there's like seven or eight popular atonement theories of like what exactly does christ do and and on our episode with heiser he says all of them work Mm. there's there's a little bit of truth in all of the atonement theories of what exactly Christ does. Because I, I flat out asked him that. I'm like, I've heard this a thousand, I mean, I, I've had, a, you know, I've heard the, the gospel message thousands of times in my life, but it was just this moment where I was like, well, what do you think? Um, but but the, the ransom theory is that, you know, Christ pays a ransom to get us back. We were in debt, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and it makes, makes sense. sense. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's getting real... It's getting real gospely on this one, but I love it. <laughs> so how is this undone? How how is the how is the Fed undone? Well, I think first of all, um, it's important that every American understands some basic things about the Federal Reserve because I think the way that we get out of this debt enslavement system is first of all, we are armed with truth, knowledge, and understanding. Because if we understand that the roots of the Federal Reserve are in nausea, which is deception, we have to come against that deception with understanding. And so if I can like take a few minutes just to lay out basics of what I think every American should understand about the Federal Reserve. And, you know, many of us probably already understand this, so I don't want to insult anyone, but it's in hopes that it reaches people that maybe don't understand. Um, Because really, the Federal Reserve has worked so hard at covering things up. And so it would make sense that not most of us really understand. So with that, I'll just take a few minutes um, to lay out some things. So first of all, um, the Federal Reserve, it's an independent agency made up of privately owned banks. And it's run by a board of governors, 12 regional banks, and the Federal Open Market Committee. And so the President of the United States appoints the board of governors, and then the Senate will confirm them. Um, And while the the headquarters of the Federal Reserve are in Washington, D.C., It is not a government agency. That's really important to understand. And so the term federal in their name was meant to obfuscate the truth. In fact, I heard an interview of Alan Greenspan, and he was uh, the former chair of the Federal Reserve. 
And he was asked, what is the proper relationship between the president of the United States and the Federal Reserve chair? And this is what he says. He says, well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. And that means basically that there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. Mm. So here he is admitting that there are no checks and balances on the power of the Federal Reserve. So that's important. Another thing that's really critical to understand is that the U.S. dollar is a fiat currency. And in 1971, Nixon took us off the gold standard. And at that point in time, moving forward, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency. And what that means is it's backed by nothing. And so history proves that nations and empires that debase their currency fail and they collapse. And so fiat currencies fail 100% of the time yeah. because they buckle under the weight of debt and gold always wins. Hmm. So that's important to understand. And in more recent history, about every 40 years, there's been a change in our monetary system. And right now we are 50 years into this fiat currency. And so our economy is on the precipice of implosion. Yeah. And we're actually already starting to see signs of hyperinflation. So just looking at the price of lumber, it has increased 600% from the start of the year. And so that is definitely the signs of hyperinflation. And so we, we definitely need a major structural change within our banking system. Another thing that's important, I kind of touched on this, but the product of the Fed is a debt note. And so if you look at um, a dollar bill, you'll see up top, it says Federal Reserve note. Well, a note is a debt instrument. It's an IOU, essentially. And so the Federal Reserve uses money magic to enslave us. Now, what do I mean by that? So I'm going to paint like this picture for us that hopefully um, is makes it a little bit more clear. So imagine we're at this magic show and a magician pulls out of thin air the first ever $1 bill and he gives it to you and he says, you can use it, but you need to pay me back $1 plus interest. So then you're thinking to yourself is if this is the first $1 bill ever created, where am I going to get the money to pay the interest? So then the magician pulls out of thin air a second $1 bill. And now you're thinking, okay, problem solved. I can use the second dollar to pay the interest off. But the magician tells you, you can have these $2, use it however you want, but you need to pay me back $2 plus interest. So now you're back in the same quandary. And the uh, magician pulls out of thin air a third dollar bill but by this time, you realize there is no possible way to pay off the interest. And this is the debt enslavement trick of the Federal Reserve. They create Federal Reserve notes out of thin air, and it's just paper. In fact, in most cases, it's just digital numbers on a computer screen. And the Boston Federal Reserve actually admits to this um, when they say, when you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. 
But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it's creating money. And so the term reserve in their name is actually a sleight of hand because they've never had the reserves on which they lend out money. And so the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air. And this sounds just like this sounds just like the garden. Like Satan doesn't think that we can get out of this debt, right? Right. Like he sort of represents the. He sort of operates the. He's the original enslaver, and they're just kind of carrying out that Luciferian way of like enslaving people. Just kind of putting that all together, like deception with deception. And then that's why you need Christ to pay the the ransom, pay the debt off, pay get us get us back. I never thought about it in terms like this. So it's just it's I mean I've heard it before, but you know, you don't piece it all together of like really what enslavement is. I mean, I've fought debt my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like I've I hate I didn't take student loans. I didn't want a student I didn't my whole life I've fought I, I've always wondered like why do I hate the system? <laughs> now I'm like maybe I now I get I get it, you know, it just goes against it you just you can feel that enslavement in you and you just want to work work your way out of it i don't want you to own me i know you right. own me uh, i've naturally been wired that way so i've fought against it but anyway sorry keep going i sort of no that's good i think it. we all feel that we've all been under this heavy enslavement yeah so the other thing that's really um interesting and eye-opening is so the same year that the federal reserve act was passed in 1913 the 16th Amendment was ratified, and that allowed Congress to be able to impose federal income tax for the purpose of paying off the interest from the dollars that they borrowed from the Federal Reserve. So anytime the Fed sends billions of dollars to other nations, guess who's on the hook for that? We are, the American taxpayer. And so again, if you go to that usdebtclock.org, you'll see that our national debt right now is above 28 trillion dollars and that means that every u.s taxpayer owes 225 thousand dollars plus to pay off that debt are we are we the like the last stopper in them having complete world domination is that what they're trying to do because it feels like they're trying to destroy our currency on purpose so they can reinstitute the new currency and the new system that we're all under which sounds exactly like the Nephilim agenda that you've been describing. Yeah, you're getting it. That's it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I tell it to friends. They're actively trying to destroy the currency. Why would they do that? Why would they Why would they want to shoot ourselves in the foot? And it's like, just look at all the clues. They're there. I mean, they're just printing money like crazy. And then Bitcoin's going through the roof. What do you think about cryptocurrencies? They seem like a rebellion against that. They do, definitely. Um, it's it's very interesting um, to see what cryptocurrencies are doing. And they're trying to get into cryptocurrencies as well. Um, you know, the globalists are. And so it's it's kind of this battle that's that's going on. Yeah, I don't think they I don't think they anticipated Bitcoin right, coming right. onto the scene. Because there's so much like every time you turn on the news, Luke, there's just Bitcoin uses too much energy and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, 
like Elon Musk is 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 downing Bitcoin, and I'm just like, well, there's only 21 million Bitcoin ever, so they can't inflate it. You you can't add another Bitcoin to it. So if you think about it, in a sense, people want. What would you rather have the the magician who can keep making dollars, or the right. or own one Bitcoin and you can never make another one? I mean, I I don't know. It's interesting. Just to see if they, if they if they try to to change the way it's it's spent though, because that's the way you can control that is to not is to not to not to allow it to convert poo poo it to use to a usable or what we consider usable currency. Right? But you can't really ban it. Well, I'm just saying, like, if you want to, they won't, maybe they won't like converge dollars. But I can send Bitcoin to you directly. Sure. I and agree. it goes through the network. So it, as soon as we figure out how to peer to peer transfer it, I don't know. I just, I, I, I see human beings like being scrappy and they're trying so hard to kill us and kill, kill our spirit and take over the world. And we're just like, they're just trying to bring us down, you know? But anyway, I'll let you tell us, you know, more about you. <laughs> just but I think you're I mean you're right over the target they want to um, bring us to our knees America because we are I think we're the last um, to stand against the globalist and so you know how we go the world goes and this is a massive battle of all battles good versus evil and and what the globalist, I mentioned in my first podcast, the globalist agenda is the Nephilim agenda. They're one in the same, and that is the total domination of humanity. And so just one, one last thing to hit on um, banking <laughs> gets a little bit worse than what I've even described. Um, but I do want to end with some hope. But anyway, so um, one of the things that I think it's important for us to understand about the banking system is that it's built on this house of cards called the fractional reserve banking. And so what fractional reserve banking is, is it's um, the notion that um, not everyone will withdraw their deposits at one time. So they'll stagger their withdrawals. So the banks um, only have to keep a portion of the deposits on reserve. And so the Federal Reserve has set uh, what they call reserve requirements for banks. And for most banks, that's about 10%. And so what that means is if I take $100 and I deposit it in my bank, my bank only is required to keep $10 on reserve. And then they loan out $90. And when they loan out that $90, they charge a massive amount of interest so that they can get rich off of my money. Meanwhile, they're giving me a measly less than 1% interest for the privilege of accessing my money. And so that's just another example of how the banking system exploits us. And it, you know, it actually reminds me something that I talked about um, on the first podcast when I was explaining about um, Esau's character. And I, I talked about how he was a hunter. And one of the Hebrew words, um, root words describing Edom is the root word sued. And it, a figurative meaning of that is someone who lies in wait to catch a human or someone who entraps another person for the intent of exploiting them for personal gain. And so when I think about that, this is what the elite banksters have done to us. They've lied in wait to entrap us to exploit us for their own personal gain. And that's why 
um, you know, we can see these Nephilim traits in the Edomites and it, it goes all the way through history, right up to those that created the federal reserve. And so it's interesting how it all ties together. So interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense too in that, in that context of why they'd want to push for a cast or society and you can control all the flow, right? And that's the one out we have is we actually use cash. We don't need to necessarily need a bank per se, but they, every other thing that we have to do requires us to have a bank and let them have our money. But yeah, they, I mean, they were trying to do this year with the, There was a whole bunch of things up on the docket about how using COVID so that we don't have to touch the money, you know, and it all feels like it's like you said, it's, there's, there's an agenda. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking this whole time, Laura, is that they're about enslavement and Christ is about freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just these two things, regardless of what you think, you can just, this is how they operate. Enslave, enslave. Satan's always trying to enslave you. And Christ is like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, you have access to the Father now. Freedom. Amen. Giving it back to the people. And if you can't see that, and that's the thing, I think that we have such a split view in our culture right now, is because there's some people that are still loyal to this system and there's people who are just have woken up to it and say you're in a you're in a war basically and you've got to wake up to that it's not just what whatever you think about for an hour on sunday all your transactions go back to this debt system that we've we've found ourselves in and i've heard a lot of people on fringe you know fringe podcast talk about this stuff getting dismantled behind the scenes do you subscribe any of that that there's this like there is this war going on behind the scenes right now of this system is being attacked and being dismantled and they're trying really hard to keep it from being dismantled. Do you, do you subscribe to any of those, those theories or those things going on in the background right now? I do. I, I think, you know, if we were to think about those that are fighting for um, the kingdom of God or for good, that they have an understanding of what the globalists are out to do. And so they have a strategy and part of that involves um, moving back to something that is potentially gold backed. So we need a currency that is asset backed. There's no other way forward without that. And so um, I think there are lots of things going on behind the scenes. Um, You know, I'm trying to keep, tabs on some of that it's hard because you know you before you share it with others you want to be able to corroborate it and because it's so much behind the scenes um it's not quite ready to be mainstream yet but i do think there's a lot going on um i think you know one way or the other we're going to see a major shift in our monetary system and and hopefully we'll come out of it on the right side of things Hmm. Mhm. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I would say that's the one of the connection points is um, it's right there on the Federal Reserve note is the circumpunct, the all-seeing eye. And so um, it, it really ties together what 
what I've talked about, you know, throughout history and what we've seen on Jekyll Island. And, you know, what's, what's interesting to, um, to think about is when, so I talked about, um, you know, the Temecuans on Jekyll Island and then the Europeans um, introducing slavery onto the island. So in 1910, um, is when six men stole away in the dark of the night on a train, um, instructed to only use their first names, and they were headed towards Jekyll Island. And at that time, Jekyll Island was an elite club. It was a private club for um, some of the, the wealthiest in our land. So J.P. Morgan's, Rockefeller's, um, you know, people like that. And so when these six men stole away in the dark of the night, it was to go to Jekyll Island to give birth to the Federal Reserve. And so they, they represented either themselves or the people they represented was one fourth of the world's wealth at the time. So they represented the industry titans of oil and steel and railroad. And so when we think about the giants, the titans, industry titans are giants in our land, so to speak. They might not be physical giants, but they have a lot of power and control and they, they dominate and they use that to manipulate people. And so when they stole away in the dark of the night in 1910, their purpose and their goal was to create a banking cartel. And they, they had to do it in secrecy because at the time, the American public would have nothing to do with the central bank. Hmm. They've been burned before by central banks. And so that's why we have the obfuscation with the term federal and the term reserve. It was meant to deceive the American people and to get this banking cartel in. And so when we think about, you know, the Federal Reserve was birthed by industry titans and we think about the circumpunct and all that I talked about that is potentially on the land itself of Jekyll Island um, I'm thankful for when God sends people like Timothy Bentz onto the land um, to do prayer assignments. And, and I know um, other intercessors uh, have been sent on the land. There's a gentleman named Ed Watts who just recently in November went to Jekyll Island. And it's fascinating because I happened to see him in December. And when he was on Jekyll Island, he um, prayed in front of this tree. And I don't know if you guys have seen the front cover of my book, but it's this massive tree with mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. exposed root system. And the Lord a while back gave me a vision of what the Federal Reserve looks like in the spiritual realm. And it's an octopus and it's got its tentacles around every institution in our land. And so when I was sharing that um, with Ed Watts, he talked about going to Jekyll Island and he took a stake and he pounded the stake in the land at the base of this tree that had a root system very similar to the one on my book. And he took a picture or somebody else was taking a picture as he was praying and breaking um, the, the connections uh, to slavery and to these other things. And he goes to hit the nail on or the hammer on the nail head and this flash of light like bursts forth and they capture it on camera. And so it is remarkable. So I'm grateful that God sends people who are obedient to hear what 
what God needs to be done on the land itself. And I, I just want to encourage people that, you know, we can be giant slayers. And, you know, we look at the giant slayers in the Bible. We think about Joshua and Caleb and David and Deborah. These were all men and women who actually were able to win battles against giants. I wrote about this in my book, but there's a pattern. If you look at these four giant slayers, they actually have similar characteristics or a pattern that they developed in the relationship with the Lord. And so the first one being that they developed intimacy with the Lord so that they could hear the voice of the Lord and know what it is they were supposed to do. So first there was that intimacy and then they had the fear of the Lord. So they, they walked in fear of the Lord versus fear of man. And then that gave them supernatural courage and strength to fight against the giants and have victory. And I believe in this day and time, God is looking for people who are willing to be giant slayers. And what does that mean? That means that we aren't afraid to go up against these institutions that are trying to enslave us. We aren't afraid to speak out. We aren't afraid to, to go and to pray in those areas that God wants us to pray. Because like we were saying earlier, when we appropriate the blood of Jesus on the land, it can heal the land itself and break off those curses. And what we want to do is reverse the curse and release blessings onto the land so that um, we can walk in that prosperity. So I just wanted to encourage us all with that. Yeah, I love it. I really yeah. do. Don't say like 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 David pick up five stones for Goliath and his brothers, right? Right. I mean, it makes so much sense now that the violence of the Bible, these were giant slayers. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's been a big eye-opener eye for me over the last couple of years is just, they were giant slayers. They were. And we are supposed to be too. And one of my questions was when you were talking about, I know we keep going, but uh, it's good. Uh, you can, you, If you have to go, just let us know. Um, when you talked about Nimrod becoming a gibberine, do you think some of these people connected to the Fed are doing similar seances with occult stuff, and then they are 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 they converting themselves over, becoming Nephilim themselves in the modern day, and then following through and enslaving us? Some of the Rockefellers and some of these Rothschilds. Yeah, absolutely. Are, you think yeah. they're doing that? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that would be important to connect that answers that question is, you know, when I talked about the transformation from Esau to Edom and how that was a a really important um, clue of how we can trace the Nephilim from Noah to the dollar bill. When I say the dollar bill, I mean like the people involved in the Fed. And so when we think about Edom and that transformation, It's interesting because um, I talked about how um, the Horites were connected with Amalek. And so just real quick, if we think about the Horites, um, you know, Bible talks about how they lived in the land of Sair, but they were dispossessed from that land by the Edomites. And what happened was, um, so got the the Horites and the Edomites. And we know that there was some intermingling there because Amalek was the grandson of Esau on his father's side. 
But on his mother's side, he was the grandson of a Horite chief named Sire, the same Sire that the mountain was named after. And so because there's this intermingling between the Horites and the giants, and there's an intermingling with the Horites and the Edomites, I began to ask the question, okay, is there a biblical example of the Edomites being termed or called the Gibberer? And in fact, there is, there's an example, um, his name is Dog, and he was an Edomite. And what David talks about, Dog, really kind of paints this picture of what was going on here. And he mentions that this is in Psalm 52. He says, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man, the loving kindness of God? And that word, O mighty man, that's gibberer. And it says, the loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor. O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. So here we have David describing Dog as a gibberer. And he's filled with deceit and he boasts in evil. And we learn a little bit more of his character in this story in 1 Samuel uh, 21 and 22. And that is when Saul is in hot pursuit of David and David needs provisions. So he goes to the priests of Nob and he asks for provisions. He needs food and he needs a weapon. And so the priests of Nob give him a uh, the showbread because it's the only thing available. And then they give him the very weapon, the very sword that he used earlier in his life to behead Goliath. And so this actually saves David's life, these provisions. Well, at the time, Dog was eyewitness to this. Now, Dog was the head shepherd of King Saul. And so he went back and reported to King Saul what had just happened. And so Saul gets enraged and he orders his guards to kill all the priests of Nob. But the guards don't want to touch the priests of the Lord. But Dog welcomes the opportunity and carries it out with this ungodly vengeance because what he does is he not only slaughters the priests of Nod, but he kills the women, the children, the infants, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep. It was an absolute bloodbath in Nod, and he committed genocide on that day. And so that for me clearly was a sign that here's an, a, an Edomite, a biblical example of someone with Nephilim traits. So then I began to wonder, are there other examples of Edomites with these Nephilim traits? And there are at least two that stand out. One is Haman in the book of Esther, and the other one is King Herod. And so we know that, that Haman had genocidal traits because he secured the decree from the king to annihilate all the Jews. Well, what's interesting is that Haman is an Agagite. And if you remember from a first podcast, I talked about King Agag. He was king of the Amalekites. And so Amalek was a descendant of Esau. So essentially, Haman is an Edomite. And it makes sense where this deep-seated hatred of the Jews comes from because it runs deep in his generational line. And then we have King Herod, who is considered an Idumean. And Idumean is essentially the Greek term for the word Edomite. 
And so Herod was considered a half Jew. And we know he had these um, genocidal traits because he ordered the, the slaughter of male infants two years and younger when Jesus was born. And so um, we think about here is three Edomites in the Bible that have Nephilim traits. They're deceitful, they're rageful, violent, murderous, genocidal. And so when I started to make that connection, I realized, okay, so there must be Nephilim traits running in the Edomite bloodline. And so with that, I knew, okay, I need to follow the trail of the Edomites. And I wanted to find more examples outside of scripture that might corroborate this theory that the Edomites had the Nephilim bloodline. And so thankfully the Egyptians are incredible or were incredible at record keeping. And there's um, documents that actually connect the Edomites um, with the, what are termed the Shasu. And so the Egyptians actually have quite a number of encounters with this group that they called Shasu. And it's not a biblical term that we're, that we recognize. It probably had its origins in Egypt, but essentially these were a group of nomadic people that come from the Southern Levant area. And so they were uh, mentioned as early as 1550 BC, all the way until 747 BC. And um, what's important to know is not only were they nomadic and they um, roamed like the Bedouin um, culture, but there's a number of different references that the Egyptians make that tie these Shasu to the Edomites. And so um, there's a monument of Ramses II and it claims that he plundered the, Shash, the Shasu land and captured the mountain of Sair. And then there's also this 19th dynasty letter that mentions the Sashu tribes of Edom. So right there we have a connection. And then there's also Ramses III declares that he destroyed the Sairites among the tribes of the Shasu. And so according to the Egyptians, we have this connection that the Shasu were prominent in the Edomite population. So then I thought, okay, is there any documents then that will um, show us the stature of the Shasu? And there is. There's one called the, the Craft of the Scribe. And this is what it says. It says, the face of the pass is dangerous with Shasu hidden under the bushes. Some of them are four or five cubits nose to foot with wild faces. Now, most scholars believe that that, uh, that they use the Egyptian royal cubit um, in this particular document. So that's a, about 20 inches. So that would put these shasu anywhere between six feet and eight inches to eight foot, four inches. So um, that was a real important connection because here we have the Egyptians linking the Shasu with the Edomites. And we, we hear that the Shasu may have been six foot to eight foot um, giants. And so giants were among the Edomites. Um, and so then from there, I just followed the migration trail of the Edomites to Rome and to Khazaria. And the Khazarians is where we get the Ashkenazi Jews and the Rothschilds were Ashkenazi Jews. And from the Rothschilds, 
we have Jacob Schiff and Paul War Warburg, who were the agents of the Rothschilds, and they were instrumental in the creation of the Federal Reserve. And so it all ties together in that way. Boom. Wow. Dang. Now you just dropped the hammer on us. We went all the way back to Egypt and Ramses and came all the way back around. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my last question then to tie all this up, is that some people have described, when you say the Nephilim agenda, I think at first, I just have to clarify, a lot of people talk on our show, guests, that like the Nephilim were just here and then they got wiped out, right? And it's just this, you know, it's just part of the story. Mm -hmm. But what I like about our interviews with you is that you're kind of, you're saying, no, this this, this is a moving, breathing thing that's, that's like a cancer and if you start to look at all the clues, it's still here. It's still infecting us in so many ways. And when I was when I was editing your show, I was thinking about, you know, oh, the Nephilim agenda. That's why she keeps saying that, because it's more than just giants were here. And then afterwards, it's like they've they've infected everything. And so a lot of people talk about on our show that like there's these, you know, Obama's talking about alien or UFOs last week and disclosures coming and. Some people say the these little green men uh, they call aliens are just drones. Are the Nephilim? Do you feel like they're going to come? They're they're looking for bodies. Are they going to inhabit some sort of biological drone? Is are they coming back? I mean, what are your thoughts about the future? If we if we don't go back to the gold standard and there isn't some sort of happy ending to what's going on right now and, and it just gets more into the enslavement system it seems like man are the nephilim going to return we make jokes about it not 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 to poke fun at it but just you know because it's such a heavy topic we're just sometimes we make little jokes here and there you gotta but, meme it you gotta meme it <laughs> yeah i made a meme of yoda saying to luke <laughs> that they're coming back and and i know you're a star wars fan have you seen I, maybe you'll see that yeah. meme but I, I redid Yoda, like, sit telling Luke and the Nephilim are going to return, you know, because it's on this show. It sounds like they are. Um, do you think that? Sorry, that was a long rant. Well, I think they never left. And what I mean by that, that there are Nephilim hosts. So there are individuals that have partnered with the Nephilim agenda. And so they've partnered with those spiritual forces of darkness and um, so while we don't necessarily have maybe the phenotype of the Nephilim, although like we talked about last time on the Solomon Islands, there very well is the phenotype of the Nephilim. Yeah. But we have, we have the agenda that is being carried out. And so what the Nephilim do is they look for those individuals who are willing to align with the seed of Satan and carry out their agenda. And so I very much believe that leading some of our institutions in our land are probably Nephilim hosts, those people that have given themselves over. And that's why in that first podcast, I, I feel like it was so important to lay out what the physical and behavioral characteristics are of a Nephilim host, because not that we want to go around diagnosing people, because as I mentioned, there has to be a lot more research um, to back those criteria up. Yeah, I'd be but the first to get beat up, you know. <laughs> they'd come. Yeah. They'd, they'd throw rocks at me first. Looking for the redhead. <laughs> come get him. 
<laughs> but the point is, is it, it helps us identify um, people that might be aligning themselves with this Nephilim agenda. So now I'll say, I'll say, Nate, this is a good tie in though, man. I kind of like, there's a lot of threads, right? Like there's, when we talked to Dr. Gregory Reed, we talked a bit about like how, and Laura, Greg Reed is a um, deliverance minister, exorcist, whatever you want to call it. And he was talking about his experience with human trafficking and people, things attaching to people. And I think that really plays into this. And then also we talked about Richard Swartzen, Nate, like with the idea that like, were the giants psychotic? Was there stuff in their DNA that actually gave, they had a, you, could, you could diagnose them with psychosis? And, and we see that maybe even more so today in, dare I say, in the serial killers and the, in the, in the psychotic. Um, mm. And I just think that all of it, you know, it's, it comes together. It does feel like that, Luke. Like everyone's kind of picking up the torch and carrying it a little further. There is a, there is sort of a narrative that's happening on the show that seems to be everyone's bringing a little bit more piece of what the Nephilim are, how it we're relates. Pulling, we're pulling threads, right? And these threads yeah. just start, and you start pulling more. And you're pulling, it starts to unravel this whole this whole thing, whether it begins with Bigfoot, which it did for us, and then ends up with, you know, with a really in-depth dive into the Old Testament. And now with, with Laura here, we're able to, to really connect to the things that are happening today and have happened in the near past in our own our own American history here, which I think find us all very fascinating and also not, not surprising, right? I mean, it, Laura, you actually quoted something that I, I think I talk about a lot. I don't know if on the show, but when I talk to my friends and stuff about this as well, the idea that Solomon said there... There aren't, we talked about this with Heiser too. There's no new heresies. Like there's nothing new under the sun. They're taking the same deceptions and repackage them and then, and then sell them to the masses. But it's the same deception. It's the same lies. It, and it, it continues to be that way. And it continues to be propagated that way. But it's not new. And I, th- I think that's terribly, terribly fascinating. Um, and not a, not a macabre way, but like really in, in this context. Um, because there's, just, there's so much that I think we don't know. And I, and I think you made a good point that people are waking up. And I think that's important. I think that's maybe some of the things Nate and I really hope for this show is that people wake up to to critically think for themselves. Maybe their eyes get opened to mm-hmm. to some, like you would say that some of the agendas, or the Nephilim mm-hmm. agenda, the whatever you want to call it, there is a very real dark agenda that exists. Thank you for this. Thank you for these nuggets. It's going to take a while to unpack for sure. <laughs> Uh, but I, yeah, I find it immensely fascinating too. The whole Jekyll Island thing. I, never, I had never even heard of that until we brought you on to some research. Um, need to read the book now um, because this is really scratched niche for me. This whole space is mostly a dude space, and so I noticed that. Yeah, there's not a lot of. I mean, there's just not a lot of ladies, and so I mean, I know our listeners are wondering if you have like a little ladies' night where all the ladies get around and talk about the globalists and the in. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be like the antithesis of Oprah's book club, right? It'd be actually like finding something that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Heck yeah. Do you? I mean, because I I think that, you know, women are more empathetic. And these, 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 some of these topics are really heavy and hard to swallow. I mean, my wife was asking me about aliens tonight at dinner and she, she was just a little trepidation and she was asking me questions and I'm like, well, it's weird. And she's like, okay, how does that fit into the Bible? And I'm like, all right. Yeah. But I, do you have friends you can talk to about the stuff that are open to it? Or do you find like the, the, the ladies are a little more apprehensive? I have an incredible group of women that are intercessors that we meet together and we are all on the same page. And I, mm. I can't tell you, like 
it's rare to find a group where they've gone down this road. Now, I've gone further into the Federal Reserve, but um, yeah, it is like we encourage one another when we get together, like, okay, what, what are you hearing? What's the latest, you know, that type of stuff. But then we are, we are praying into these things and um, doing that spiritual warfare. And so, um, yeah, hey, I welcome anyone connecting with me on my website, male or female, but thanks for having me, guys. It has oh. been fantastic. Well, well shout it out! You. Shout it out for us. This is such a great segue. Shout it out for us again one more time. I know that we had the last episode, but let people know where they can find you, your book. Oh yes, yeah. So my website is nolongerenslaved.com, and that's the best place to find me. You can purchase my book through there, or you can go directly to Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Mm-hmm. Do you accept Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> See, the people want to know. The people want to know. No, I, I do not. Okay, well, we'll we'll get we'll get there. You know, we'll get you there. I'll have to work on that. We appreciate yeah. you coming on our show and uh, dropping some of these these hard truths on us, and um, we just appreciate you know you coming on such short notice again and kind of you know wrapping up these two episodes in a bow. The People, most prepared, the most organized. Yeah, the most efficient guest we have ever had on the show. Sorry, yeah. sorry, wow. Doctor, sorry, Doctor Judd, and everybody else who's been multiple on multiple times. <laughs> Dr. Laura, you are numero uno. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome, guys. Thank you.